0: Lindsay works in her basement both day and night. On the dark history of polygamy, she sheds needed light. Let's at least help her pay for pens and Diet Coke. The staring polygamy in the face ain't no joke. Just ask Emma. A new poem by Carolyn Pearson. She alone is responsible for its stupidity, but she means every word. One, two, three, go. feminist Mormon housewives.
1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the feminist Feminist Mormon housewives podcast. I'm your host Lindsay bringing you another episode in the year of polygamy series where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage and see how it affects us today. Today I'm really excited to bring back someone who did a phenomenal episode with us about uh, the revelations of Joseph Smith. He kind of picked through the the polygamy revelations of Joseph Smith and added some context to them. And uh, now Claire Barris is back to do the same thing with a revelation from Heber C. Kimball. So, Claire, can you say hello?
0: Hello.
1: Claire, I've gotten such great feedback on the episode you did on Joseph's revelations. Everyone loved that.
0: I'm glad to hear that. I, I found it fascinating, and I'm glad other people found it interesting.
1: And I have to say, I was I was just telling Claire this before we recorded. He just did a review of the new Council of Fifty minutes. That is fantastic too. So I will link to that as well. I I found it really helpful.
0: Yeah, that's that's a new book. Uh, its signature book is put out, and it uh, it's really uh, very interesting. Uh, a lot of details about the uh, Council of the Fifty. Uh, especially during the Brigham Young and John Taylor era. And uh, I I think it, it's a good uh, book that has a lot of very interesting tidbits inside.
1: Yeah, the rumor is there's there's uh, a recognition of blood atonement. They're like plotting out a blood atonement death in the historical record. So that's kind of a big deal because it's always been more secondhand or speculation. So if you like Mormon history, this is something you're going to want to pick up.
0: Yep, I agree.
1: Okay, well. Claire, tell us why you're here today. Tell us about this lawless women revelation. This was kind of new to me, and I think it's fascinating how you've picked apart this revelation. Can you tell us about it?
0: Well, yeah. Uh, So uh, this is uh, having to do with Heber C. Kimball. He was a uh, counselor to Brigham Young uh, in the first presidency, and uh, it— Heber and Brigham go way back. They were best friends. They joined the church together. They served under Joseph Smith in the Quorum of the Twelve. They are uh, kind of a rarity in that they never questioned Joseph Smith and temporarily got kicked out of the church or permanently. They they were 100% faithful to Joseph Smith the entire time through. And then Heber becomes uh, Brigham Young's first counselor. Now, after Heber C. Kimball had died, uh, his son had a book that he had inherited from his father, and it had a lot of genealogical stuff and had records while they're crossing the plains, and, and it looked like a lot of kind of mundane, not really interesting stuff. But they were looking through that, and they discovered a bunch of revelations. I think there were 16 items recorded that were Revelations that Heber C. Kimball had kept. So a real treasure, uh, an amazing find. Uh, the book is called Heber C. Kimball's Memorandum. So, and this book is called Heber C. Kimball's Memoranda, or uh, or it's called the Memorandum Book of Heber C. Kimball by some. And so, yeah. So there's 16 items. Most of them are prophecies, and and then there's Three items that all have the same date of February third eighteen fifty two which is which is what we'll dive into, uh, but these prophecies are are quite interesting. Let me tell you about a few of those uh, okay. there's uh, There's one about uh, a division of the the states uh, this is at the time of the Civil War between the North and the South, uh, another one about the soldiers of Johnston Army and when they will leave. Uh, these are all predictions. Uh, a period of sickness and mourning, uh, some revelations about the United States making war uh, against the church, that some more of these uh, talk about how he's going to be blessed among the saints, that he was going to be favored uh, by Brigham Young above everyone else, that the U.S. would be rejected. Now, the church would reject the church's petition for statehood, which which does occur. They are petitioning at that time for territorial uh, to go from a territory to a statehood, and and they do reject that. Kimball is told he could have 25 additional years of his life. Now he's 60 years old at this time. That would make him 85, which uh, curiously is the age that Joseph Smith. Kind of predicted that he would be when uh, you know it says something to the effect that if you live until the age of eighty five you'll see the Son of Man coming. Interesting. Kimball is told that he could live uh, to that age also if he desired, but he he doesn't live that long. And uh, and then there's a series of revelations about Kimball that his counsel, a fellow counselor Daniel H. Wells, would have sorrow and would be. Uh, he'd kind of be downtrodden while Heber C. Kimball would be lifted up. And Daniel H. Wells is kind of a kind of a fancy lawyer, at least in in Kimball's mind. And he was a very rough shorn farmer, you know, kind of blue-collar type more than Daniel H. Wells wasn't. And I think Kimball was pretty intimidated by Daniel H. Wells. And so he has a series of revelations about Daniel H. Wells and some other people too that Kimball apparently didn't uh didn't care much for that they would kind of be humbled by by the Lord. So these are really interesting revelations. And so
1: do we know what would prompt something like that if he were having problems with someone would he go take the revelation to the Lord in prayer and he would receive this answer?
0: Yeah, apparently. And there's there's not any detail about how these came about, but obviously some issues would come up or questions he would uh, he would ask. And he he got a lot of revelations. Uh, He he was a very revelatory guy, and it was very easy for him to receive revelations.
1: Do you have any idea what weight an apostle's revelation would carry, say, next to the president of the church's revelations at this time?
0: Uh, Well, we we have some indication. We have uh, Wilford Woodruff, for example, received some revelations, and he brought those to the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, and they took that revelation very seriously and uh, acted upon it, uh, he, he had a, a very interesting revelation about uh, basically uttering a curse on uh, the, uh, the President of the United States and the Congress, and they deliberated about it, and they went ahead and uh, they went into the temple and, and delivered a curse upon the leaders of the United States. Uh, so so they, they did take these revelations seriously. Now, Kimball, I don't know if he brought these to Brigham Young or not. I I, I haven't run across uh, indications that he had, so I don't know. Okay. So, anyway, that kind of gives you a sense of what kind of things are in this memorandum book. Now, the, uh, the item, though, that we're interested in today is this item, uh, three items, all dated February 3rd, 1852. Now, the first item, which I think is the first one that he received, is very short and, uh, and it says simply this. It says, Mr. K shall devote his entire time. A- and that's all it says. Now, I think what's going on here is he is starting to pen a revelation and he, he just, he stops, and then later, at another time, he, he picks up his pen, and he tries to articulate the same revelation again. Now, now notice, it's kind of a very informal, uh, he's being addressed by the Lord in a very inform, or very formal way. Mr. K or Mr. Kimball shall devote his entire time. That's yeah. the first item. Now the second one, uh, also with the same date, it starts out, My son Heber, so it's a much more intimate uh, addressed by the Lord. And it says, and, and listen to this uh, closely. This is uh, a very interesting revelation. My son Heber, he shall devote his entire time to, to the cause of the Lord and to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And he shall not be under the law of lawless women any more in time, as he has fulfilled the law and is now free from such spirits. And the said time shall be devoted to the humble and obedient and to those that shall listen. So this brings up some good questions. Who who are these lawless women? What law has uh, Heber C. Kimball fulfilled? How is he being freed from these spirits? And what sort of spirits are these? Uh, It's a very cryptic revelation. It, It almost reminds me of the book of Revelations that has this highly metaphorical language.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. And again, just to remind the listeners, as far as chronology goes, we're going to jump back in time. This is, again, like you said, between 1852 and 1864, correct? And this one was given in 1852?
0: Right, exactly.
1: So this is right at about the time that Orson Pratt is doing his seer. He's going off, you know, and trying to sort of proselytize the doctrine of polygamy. And it kind of leads us into the Mormon Reformation
0: yeah yeah the Mormon Reformation is coming up uh, yeah very quickly in just a couple of years that'll lead into that. The third item with the same date uh, also discusses lawless women and it shares almost exactly but not quite uh, the same text as as the previous item, although it begins differently this one starts with uh, saying the spirit said that I should instead of uh, the previous one which said my son. And the one before that said, Mr. K. Shell. So it's kind of interesting how the the text, the voice changes uh, in each of the versions of this revelation. Uh, But he appends additional information at the end, which kind of gives us some clues, I think, that help us interpret what this revelation means. So let me, let me read the additional text that was, was added. It says, those that shall listen to my counsel and shall have faith in my counsel and shall listen to his law, for he is my servant and I will stand by him. And those that will not build him up shall not prosper. I mean, those of his house shall not prosper and peace shall not be with them. They shall see sorrow except they repent. So this additional text uh, gives us some clues as to who the lawless women are. Notice the phrase those of his house. That indicates that these problems are occurring in his household. And this is about women, uh, and so these are women in his house, and apparently they're those they, they are not listening to Hebrew's law and Will not build him up, so I, I'm pretty sure that the lawless women were disobedient wives who were not humble and who would not listen to their husband Heber.
1: And the language seems really sort of Old Testament, sort of with a edge to it. It's sharp and harsh.
0: Yes, yeah, it's it's pretty uh, pretty direct, uh, severe uh, chastisement. Or, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not pleasant, uh, not pleasant language, uh, if you're on the receiving end of this, uh, revelation. So now, as you know, uh, Hebrew was a very married uh, person. Uh, one scholar called him one of the most married men in the modern Western world.
1: <laughs> I've never uh, heard that before, but that's great.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's Stanley, uh, Kimball, uh, who, uh, He did a biography of uh, Heber C. Kimball, and and uh, that's his quote. Uh, So so let's go back and maybe review a little bit about Heber C. Kimball and uh, plural marriage. Uh, In the summer of 1840, and Lindsay, you've covered this before, uh, in the summer of 1841, uh, Joseph Smith goes to the Kimballs, or or to Heber, and tells Heber that he wants, Joseph Smith wants to marry Heber's wife, Velate or Violet or Velate. I don't I'm not sure how to pronounce your name.
1: We've been um, going with Velate.
0: Velate, okay. Uh I'll I'll try to stick with that then. So and this was a very uh, anxious and trying time for them. And I think they spent several days just wondering what to do and finally they agree and they go to Joseph Smith and they say uh yes uh Heber Heber says you can have velate and uh but then Heber says well it was it was only a test so then so that was uh, one anxious uh, episode then then they had another one that followed shortly thereafter uh uh Joseph then asks for uh Heber and Velate's daughter Helen Mar Kimball, and there's been a lot of discussion about Helen Mar Kimball with the recent church essay, and her age uh, has has generated a lot of discussion. She was almost 15, uh, or in other words, 14, and uh, uh, Joseph Smith wanted to marry her. And this also was a very anxious time for the parents and for Helen. And Helen has some reminiscences, and she, she basically says that the only reason she accepted this was because of her trust in her dad. She said she would not have done it under any other circumstance. She also says that later she was really surprised to learn that this was not just a ceremony, that there was more to it uh, than just a ceremony, but she doesn't really elaborate what that means. Um, So this was another trying time, but the beginning of uh, the Kimball's, introduction to uh, plural marriage now in uh, early 1842 uh, Kimball marries his first plural wife uh, Sarah noon then in the then after Joseph Smith dies uh, in the fall of 1844 he marries 11 additional wives and then three more in the late winter of that uh, uh, in 1845 and then in the winter of 1845-46, he marries 22 wives. Now, this is during the time of the Nauvoo Temple has been completed. They're about to get kicked out, and they have to cross the plains, and they are frantically doing temple ordinances. And And Heber C. Kimball takes 22 wives during that winter. There's another one in 1848, and then... Uh, and then after about an eight-year break, uh, he does four in 1856 and one more in 1857. Now, those are during the Mormon Reformation. So he takes uh, these additional wives, five additional wives during the Reformation. I, if I count right, I think this is 43 uh, total wives that he, he takes.
1: Wow, that does make him the most married man in the yeah. short period of time.
0: Yes, uh, he yeah, and I, Brigham may have had more. I, I'm not sure, but uh, um, you know, he's either in first or second place uh, if they're if they're having yeah, a contest. We,
1: we know that Brigham did accrue a lot of. Uh, well, I mean, Brigham and Heber, and uh, it was a Massa Lyman that took on Joseph's wife, so that was a big part of it after Joseph was killed. But uh, only one chose a Massa, and the rest kind of were separated with the two of them. So.
0: Oh. Yeah. Okay.
1: That's a yeah, lot that's of marriages. Right.
0: They, they kind of felt that they should take Joseph's wives as uh, some kind of an obligation or a priesthood thing. We we don't know why, but that's a very interesting uh, facet of uh, of this. Well, um, okay. So yeah, I want to kind of illustrate uh, the most his most productive period of marrying. This is, occurs on February third, eighteen forty six. And on, on that day, he marries 10 women, the most he would ever marry in a single day. And then he married two more wives the next day. And then the day after that, he married five more. Uh, so this is, this is a crazy, uh, period of marrying.
1: Yeah. And I just want that to sink into people because when we hear about some of these marriages, it's sort of like this assembly line of these women would come up, place their hands over his on the altar. Sometimes another woman would place her hands over. And, You can imagine if this was your only marriage, what that experience would feel like. It was very untraditional to begin with, but you wouldn't have a honeymoon. You wouldn't have time with your husband. You wouldn't have, especially in Heber's case where he was gone all the time. You know, my only, my personal bias is Heber would probably be one of the most difficult church leaders to be married to because of his traveling and his sort of inability to care for all these women.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, those are great points. Absolutely. And I think this all feeds into this revelation that we're, we're talking about, uh, uh, and, and some of the difficulties he experienced in this, uh, with, the, with these marriages. Yeah. And, and he, in fact, with this huge household that he, uh, accumulates, he has a lot of problems. His grandson said, quote, uh, that Heber C. Kimball was, quote, often heard to declare that the plural order of marriage, with its manifold cares and perplexities, had cost him a bushel of tears, close quote. So, so yeah, his grandchildren watched Kimball mourn over the difficulties that that he had, a bushel of tears. So, I think to shed some light, if we look at kind of more theological or doctrinal aspects uh, of this as taught by uh, Heber C. Kimball, I think it will shed a little bit more light on this revelation. Uh, Mormonism had incorporated a, a very hierarchical, patriarchal approach in how church and family were were viewed. So two months after uh, Heber C. Kimball got the lawless women revelation, he preached this. I, uh, Lizzie, do you want to do you want to read some of these quotes and then I'll comment on them? Does sure.
1: That some have said that I was very presumptuous to say that Brother Brigham was my God and Savior, and that Brother Joseph was His God.
0: Okay, so so yeah, this this hierarchical model uh, it, it goes right into the home. So, for example, here's a here's another quote where uh, Jesus they're referring to Jesus' statement: "If you love me, keep my commandments." Here's what Heber C. Kimball had to say about that.
1: Okay, he says, If you love brothers Brigham, Heber, Jedediah, and the Twelve, please to keep our commandments that are given to you from day to day, and you will be blessed and exalted. I do not want a woman or a wife to tell me that she loves me when she does not keep my commandments, for her statement would be vague and foolish.
0: Okay, so, yeah, this statement, it, it assumes this hierarchical, priority. So the church members are to be obedient to the commandments of the church leaders, and wives are to be obedient to the commandments of their husbands. Uh, So Kimball's wives would receive exaltation through his priesthood, and he then would receive, he would be saved by Brigham Young, and Brigham would be saved by Joseph Smith. And and so this is kind of how how he viewed it uh, at this time.
1: I do think yeah. the language is interesting. I just want to point out it's sort of veers away from this. A lot of the revelatory language that we're used to is sort of this like old you know King James, English, you know, New Testament, sometimes Old testament type stuff and this this is kind of a confusing layout of that i think
0: yeah yeah it, it's it's a very curious kind of a mix, and yeah, I, I think you're right. So uh, another time, uh, Heber C. Kimball spoke of the importance of this hierarchical role uh, in maintaining happiness. And here, if if you listen, you'll get a hint about the marital strife that he may be encountering. Um, Yeah, go ahead. Okay.
1: Now, suppose my wives and my children would take the same course to please me and be subject to me as I am to Brother Brigham. Would there be any sorrow or confusion or broils? No, no. There would be no sorrow. There would be no blues in my family. I am never blue when I do Brother Brigham's will. But when I do not do it, I begin to grow blue. That's also right. interesting language for me.
0: <laughs> yeah, that is. That is. Yes. Um, so so j- just as he b- begins uh, marrying his 22 wives in 1845, he, he gives an address to what was called the Holy Order or the quorum of the, the anointed. And these are people who had been endowed, and at that time it was a quorum. And uh, and he's addressing them about their marriage covenants, and this is what he has to say.
1: Okay, he says, He spoke of the necessity of women, and necessity and women are capitalized, being in subjection to their husbands, I am subject to my God. My wife is in subjection to me and will re- reverence me in my place, and I will make her happy. I do not want her to step forward and dictate to me any more than I dictate to President Young.
0: Okay. Now, it, and this is kind of interesting. I mean, this is all uh, its all really, this idea really goes back to the Apostle Paul in uh, one of the letters uh, where he talks about... Uh, Uh, the kind of this hierarchy of God and then man and then women. And he says some things that are, uh, you know, like women should be silent in church and should, and that they should be subjected to their husbands uh, completely. And this is actually stuff from the Romans, the Romans, this is how they viewed things. And Paul was a Roman. And so this ideology has, uh, because Paul included this in a letter, uh, this has kind of become canonized. and, And now, Affects a lot of us today, uh, and a lot of ideology in, in Christianity. Uh, and the thing about Paul is, he never uh, he never sat and listened to Jesus preach. He, he was converted after uh, Jesus had died, and he had a lot of disagreements with the other apostles. So it's kind of curious that his his doctrinal ideology has come to be uh, a standard that many people uh, accept today.
1: Yeah, and it, there's this sort of hierarchical way that he organizes marriages, almost like his marriages, he's organizing his o- own quorum. You know, he's often comparing his wives to his relationship with Brigham Young in the leadership role, which is also interesting.
0: Yes, it absolutely is. Yeah, everything had its place in this kind of pyramid structure and uh, who was on top and, and, uh, and then who was uh, down below. Um, and we see this uh in the temple uh ritual uh women back then uh, covenanted to obey quote the law of their husbands close quote and uh this concept has continued to be taught up into the modern era uh, by church leaders and it was uh, in fact it was still in the temple endowment until uh nineteen ninety and and then it was uh, changed uh, where women would, uh, were to hearken to the counsel of their husbands. Uh, uh, but, but there's no covenant where uh, husbands should hearken to the counsel of their wives. Um, so men are still taught, to, like in the proclamation, to preside in, in the home. So this idea is still there, but it has been softened to some extent.
1: Yeah, yeah, and this is a very big feminist issue when we talk about the temple. This is something that we talk about a lot on the Feminist Modern Housewives blog and things like this. But it's interesting to sort of see its conceptions happening with Heber. I mean, Heber, it's no secret that Heber has said some really troubling things about women, right? He's got some really doozies of a quote if you (laughs) go Google that. But yeah, that makes sense to see that connection there.
0: Yeah, yeah. These are hard. His teachings, his ideologies, are are really quite hard to, you know, for us today. And I know it was a different time back then, and I know we are changing. uh, But certainly, as you pointed out, uh, a lot of people on uh, the feminist Mormon housewives and elsewhere uh, are kind of wrestling with some of these concepts. Um. All right. So, so Kimball, uh, he. There's another quote we have where he, he may be talking about uh, temple covenants uh, when he writes his first wife of uh, late in 1849. So he had been anointed, and he, he writes his wife.
1: Yeah, he says, quote, Teach your sisters, which he means the plural wives, to mind their own business and to treat their husband with respect and let my business alone and hold their tongues when they want to speak evil to me.
0: Okay. So so yeah his now his revelation uh points out a reversal in the uh kind of the defined hierarchical structure. So remember back in the uh, the lawless women revelation it says he shall not be under the law of lawless women anymore. So I I'm hoping in context of these quotes I, I think we see what he means. Uh his wives uh, are supposed to obey him but according to the revelation his wives were some of them were lawless and would not follow their husband's law.
1: Yeah, I'm and thinking th- of like there's Mary Ellen Kimball and uh I don't have the quote in front of me but she was one of his wives and this I think she she struggled with conception. I think she had her first child when she was forty, and he goes Heber comes to bless a child as was tradition. he was very big on blessing his newborns and if I remember right, the blessing he gives her he gives a child was not to have the same despondent spirit of its mother, which is interesting
0: <laughs> yeah that's that's that probably didn't make her feel too too good uh, I'm guessing I no. haven't heard that before yeah um okay so so Heber was. He was subjected to his wives rather than they being subjected to him as he as he felt it should be, and now that he had fulfilled their law, uh, or in other words, he had I think he had endured them disobeying or possibly dictating to him. He, the revelation kind of gives him uh, permission to ignore them, and by remaining devoted only to the quote. The humble and obedient, close quote, wives. So I, I think the revelation is saying, uh, just just pay attention to the obedient ones, and the other ones they they're in violation of a law, and you you're free to ignore them, and and you know you don't need to have anything to do with them. Now there's a, a term uh, in time that is in the in the text uh, the, the the words in time. It says, uh, listen to this and, and and see if you can pick this up. It says, he shall not be under the law of lawless women anymore in time. Now, I think this might, it could have to do with the relationship uh, with his wives uh, that are ending in this life. Remember, there's the concept of being married in time, being married in eternity, or sometimes people were married in time and eternity. And, I'm wondering if this phrase in time may have to do with only this earth life, but in the next life, uh, that the, they, this law would be reinstated and that the, the wives would, uh, again be under Hebrew C. Kimball and, and there would be obedience and, and so forth and so on. That's a possible interpretation of this, uh, phrase in time that, that is included in this quote here.
1: Well, and we just talked about, Uh, I I think your interpretation is close because we just talked about uh, sort of some other men's understandings when the manifesto comes out and their understanding was a a bunch of men in Southern Utah, and this was common when the manifesto came out, they said, okay, we're going to uh, keep our first wives for time only and we'll hook up back up with you guys in in the next life. So I think that 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 was kind of the common understanding that time was your way of saying, you know, I can live with you in this world, but regardless of what happens, we're all going to be sealed together.
0: Okay, yeah, yeah. It, it's a very interesting dynamic where you have really three different types of of marriages in uh, you know, time, time and eternity, and eternity only. And so it it really it really adds some uh, flavor and, and kind of a colorful characteristic uh, to this. It makes it a lot more interesting.
1: Absolutely. And and uh, and in Heber's defense, I mean, let's think about. I mean, you would almost have to organize forty-five women into this sort of hierarchy and quorum, and feel like you were managing a small village with this, right? And 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 this is where we see women sort of infantilized in polygamy. They're they're lumped in with children because there is fighting and squabbling, and not only natural problems that come up in a monogamous marriage, but there's this compounded issues that they're dealing with. And so the men sort of take on this role as like a father figure to organize and chastise these women.
0: Oh, yeah. And, you know, just just the practicality of uh, having 45 people, adults in a family, and trying to make decisions, you almost have to go to the model for, for it to actually work where one person's calling the shots. I mean, with that many... It, it kind of indicates a, uh, some problematic uh, uh, the problems with the practical implementation of large-scale uh, polygamous families.
1: And we he do know, like, Brigham course. was a great organizer, right? And so yes. he had many, many wives, but his seemed—I mean, it was absolutely not perfect, but there was a sort of order that Brigham clung to and was, was sort of almost obsessed with. And we don't see the same thing with Heber. We know that his children were sort of lawless, to use that word. And uh he I believe it's sixteen women that divorced him over the course of time and other women that stayed with him were were deeply unhappy. So Hebert didn't really have a gift at managing his family responsibilities in the same way other men did.
0: Yes, uh exactly. And you know, I, I may have skipped over this uh uh fact. Um but yeah, I think there were sixteen uh divorces that he went through and he was I believe that in the year prior to this revelation, he had two divorces and then he was going to have a separation and another divorce within the next couple of months. And so I'm thinking that this, you know, the, the family or at least part of it is kind of falling apart and that may have prompted his reflection, which led to this revelation. It's my guess. Um, okay. Okay. So th- here's a really, uh, here's another thing from uh, uh Heber C. Kimball. Uh, he, he's in, in a sermon. He, he proposes a possible dialogue that may occur when he dies and then when he meets Joseph Smith in the spirit world. And so, uh, Heber C. Kimball says, uh, here we are, brother Joseph. We are here ourselves, are we not? With none of the property we possessed in our probationary state, not even the rings on our fingers, uh, which I think implies, uh, marriage, uh, wedding rings. Oh, and I, and and just let me interject. I wondered, would Heber and Brigham have had a wedding ring for every wife that they were married to? I I never thought of that, but it'd be kind of hard to put 40-some-odd rings on your fingers.
1: Especially, (laughs) you know, 10 at a time when you're in frontier Utah,
0: so. Yes. So, okay, and so Kimball says that, and then Joseph replies, uh, Uh, He will say, Joseph says, come on, my boys, where are your wives? And then Kimball says, they are back yonder. They would not follow us. And then Joseph says, never mind. Here are thousands. You can have all you want. So this gives an indication of Kimball's kind of view of how all this works and the difficulties he's having with his wives and how that maybe in the next life uh, it doesn't really matter. Um, I don't know. And
1: I will say, if anyone listening, if this sounds sort of familiar, there's sort of a theme with Mormon men at this time, particularly the men that married Joseph's wives, which would be Heber and Amasa, who is later excommunicated, and Brigham Young. They, they have this sort of narrative that we, that pops up every now and again where they have this dream, and Heber is very concerned about this, that he has to account to Joseph for his wives, how well he took care of them. In fact, I believe he tells one of them on their deathbed, please, you know, please tell Joseph I was good to you. And we see other leaders in the church doing this as well. They they really felt like Joseph was going to meet them at the gates and say, all right, tell me, tell me how this went for you, how you did.
0: Uh, it's interesting. Yeah i guess that responsibility is is a huge component yeah
1: well especially when it, heber it, it, was taking joseph's wives for time some of his wives for time so he really felt like he was sort of being a placeholder for joseph and and we know that that didn't end well for some of the women they were not pleased with it so he, we know that heber had this sort of romanticism with pleasing joseph
0: yeah that that, that makes sense absolutely um, yeah, and so th- this revelation, uh, kind of gives uh, Kimball kind of divine permission to maybe shed off this responsibility that he feels. Uh, and, uh, these time-only marriages uh, that are ending in divorce, separation, he, he gets permission to ignore them, uh, and, uh, and then to instead devote his time to the church and just building up the kingdom. So, yeah, yeah, very interesting.
1: That's a good interpretation.
0: This Now we'll kind of shift gears here a little bit. Uh, one of the other memorandum prophecies uh, uh, was given through what was called the Lord Rod. Uh, there's a little, he kind of writes where he received it from, and it says Lord Rod up at the top. And Hebrews C. Kimball had a rod that he used uh, to receive revelations through, um, it, it was a three-and-a-half-foot-long rod that Joseph Smith had given him in 1842. And we know that he received at least ten revelations through that rod. Um, and it may be that he received uh, the uh, this revelation uh, that we've been talking about through the rod, although he doesn't specifically indicate that. But that adds another interesting uh, dimension. It, his son uh noted this uh he said quote anything that was his right that's heber c Kimball's right to know uh all he had to do was kneel down with the rod in his hand, and that sometimes the Lord would answer his questions before he had time to ask them so that that's that's a pretty interesting uh dynamic there possibility
1: yeah that um, is and it, it, the the rod part is interesting because you know, you alluded to this, but we've actually done an episode on this a year ago. It wasn't part of the Year Polygamy series, but we did it for Halloween. We talked about Mormons and magic, so you can look that up. But uh, can you can you give us some more context around that to explain to the listeners why this is significant? Because it's a very foreign idea to contemporary Mormons now.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. There, there's... Uh... I, I, I've kind of looked at this a little bit and, and you know, going clear back to um, Oliver Cowdery's father. Oliver Cowdery's father was probably a member of a, a sect up in Vermont uh, that uh, was headed by a guy named Nathaniel Wood. And the uh, this Wood group um, had rods and they would receive revelations through their rods and they, They were going to, uh, to restore a new Jerusalem and build that. They were going to restore ancient Christianity. They felt they had special authority, uh, that they'd received. Uh, they had a, a, even a dietary code, certain dietary restrictions. And, uh, and they had received a revelation to build a temple, uh, with their, through their rods. And so, and they started building this, uh, temple. And Oliver Cowdery's father was uh, probably a part of that. Now, uh, Oliver Cowdery, of course, may have been raised with this idea of a rod, uh, that could be used for revelation. And, and so when Oliver shows up on Joseph Smith's doorstep, uh, in 1829, uh, after a while, they, they have a revelation, DNC 8, and both the DNC uh, 8 and, uh, no, DNC 6 and 8 both have to do with uh, a rod, which is Oliver Cadre's gift. And if and Joseph's papers have released some additional documents that show earlier versions of DNC 8, and it is talking about a rod that Oliver had. And in this revelation, in DNC 8, uh, God tells Joseph that Oliver's rod had told him many things in the past. This is something that Oliver's been using for quite some time. Um, uh, Joseph Smith Sr. also used a rod, and even Joseph Smith Jr. for a while used a rod before before he started using a seer stone. And so this rod begins right at the very beginnings of the church. And uh, a number of apostles have rods. Orson Hyde, uh, he may have used a rod when dedicating Jerusalem. Uh, Heber C. Kimball, of course, which we've mentioned, had a lot of revelations through, uh, a rod. Brigham Young had a rod. It's possible that he, he used his rod to point out the location of the Salt Lake Temple, where it was going to build. And, uh, there's also a story, uh, that he used it to find the location of the Manti Temple. And so, anyway, this, this use of a rod is, uh, kind of, uh, weaved into the fabric of early Mormonism. And it's a very fascinating uh, topic.
1: Yeah, it is. It is fascinating. And I think it. Uh, Mike Quinn talks about it in uh, Mormons in the Magic Worldview. And I would suggest, if you're interested in that, to read that. Because, I mean, he goes into very thorough detail, sort of this, this sort of stuff.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great source. Do you
1: have any other reading for that?
0: Um. Yeah, you know, I have uh, I've done a, a couple of papers on um, the rod, uh, the use of the rod in Mormon history. And, I, I, Lindsay, if you wanted, I could share uh, a couple of links. One one has to do with uh, the rod itself, and then another one has to do with uh, actually a little bit different angle. It's the Masons use of the rod in the Royal Arch ceremony, and some very interesting parallels with the use of the rod in in, in the Royal Arch Masonic ceremony, and uh, Oliver's use and, and Joseph Smith's use to recover, uh, hidden, uh, lost texts, uh, just as is done in the, uh, Royal arts ceremony. So I, I could share some links with you. If, if, uh, yeah, that's absolutely.
1: I'll link those on here. Cause I think people will be fascinated t- to read that.
0: Okay. we will do. Okay. So, um, so yeah, the, we see this revelation, uh, take three different forms, uh, uh, the earliest, uh, form, uh, is a, is an aborted, is aborted right way, part way through the first sentence. And it's a very informal or very formal and distant address by the Lord where he's addressed as Mr. K. Uh, now the, the next version, uh, as you recall is the, uh, he's called my son, uh, by the Lord. Very intimate. And, uh, this is where he says he shall devote his entire time, uh, Uh, That phrase uh, shares the text with the first version. Um, And this second version, the My Son uh, version, is very cryptic, uh, metaphorical, and the wives are referred to as spirits. And uh, then we have, of course, the third version uh, where it says the spirit tells Hebrew uh, certain things. And in there is the additional text that I think... Heber may have gone back and read that, the earlier one, and thought it was so cryptic that maybe he needed to add a little explanation. I'm only speculating here, but he adds additional text that helps us discern and figure out what he's talking about. Um, So he may have received this revelation as he was pondering the anniversary of his wedding to his ten wives, uh, the most he'd ever uh, married in a single day, and as some of these marriages were were falling apart, uh, he he'd, Heber had found happiness by strictly following Brigham Young, and Kimball felt that if his wives would strictly obey him, that they would find happiness. And uh, but this this model was wasn't working. Uh, so the, the the theology that is introduced by Joseph Smith and then refined by Brigham Young has this very, as we've discussed a hierarchical patriarchal framework, um, as the kind of the icon, the things that Latter-day Saints should strive for. And, uh, Brigham Young and, uh, saw the accumulation of wives and, and the progeny that was produced through them as a way to add glory and uh, increase to one's kingdom. And, uh, Kimball, uh, he engaged in this celestial ideal on earth by embracing plural marriage, uh, almost more than any other man. But as we've discussed, his attempt to live this form of marriage didn't produce a heavenly family on earth. It was, uh, it was very difficult. Uh, too many of his wives were independent minded. I, I kind of wonder if there was a feminist Mormon housewives uh, discussion group back then. Maybe some of his wives would have joined that. I don't know.
1: I'm gonna rename our our podcast the Lawless Women Podcast.
0: <laughs> there you go, there you go, and uh, so um, yeah, his he was absent and and quite dictatorial, and uh, and some of them resented that. Uh, now,
1: and he was also a deeply visionary man, like you mentioned. And so, I mean, he was—I mean, Mormon frontier in the 1850s was not only fanatical, but there was this sort of feverish spirituality that we don't—that we just can't recognize as contemporary Mormonism. Mormons, and we can't really understand that sort of like fiery devotion.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Very, very devoted. Very intense uh, spirituality. That, that drove and and uh, and, and that people were remarkably attracted to and and devoted their lives to.
1: Oh yeah, and it built. I mean, it built Utah and it built the Mormon kingdom, so to speak. And, and what I'm going to do is, uh, I've always been interested in Heber's 45 wives because you know everybody likes to talk about Helen Mar, his daughter, and everyone likes to talk about Velate, but we don't get to hear about all these other women. So I'm working on a graphic right now, and hopefully by the time this airs, I'll have that linked to show all these women. But what I would suggest, if you want a fun history sort of mystery that you want to do, go and uh, look at Claire's paper and the dates of these revelations were happening and then look up what was happening. So, for example, Mary Fielding Smith, who was Hiram Smith's widow, she, you know, Heber also offers himself to her. She becomes Heber's plural wife. And she dies that same year in Utah when she arrives. So it's interesting to find out, like, what's happening with these women while these revelations are going on it's kind of a fun fun way to kind of connect these dots and it's clear i mean not only did heber have women that were upset with him but he had women that were dying it's it was a and, and on top of everything going on in 1850s utah that's a lot of stuff going on so it's a really interesting time
0: absolutely yeah it it, it was a remarkably interesting fascinating trying uh, time uh, but but a lot of fun to read about and and to look into. Um well and Lindsay that's pretty much uh kind of covers uh the the Wallace uh, women revelation as, as my interpretation of it. And you know I, I certainly could have aspects of this wrong but I've I've taken my best stab to try to 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 bring it to light and try to understand it in its historical context and theological context. And, uh, and, and hopefully I've, uh, I've pulled at least a few things out of it that uh, are accurate and, and, and helpful.
1: I just appreciate you bringing it to our attention. I think it's a great, it's got this real feminist uh, issue going on with it. So it's really of interest to this podcast. And I just really appreciate your work. Uh, Claire comes to the Sun Sun Symposium every, almost every summer, and he presented last year. And you do these things where you take these topics and really do these interesting sort of takes on them. And that's why I really like your stuff, because you don't just tell the story, you dig a little bit deeper. And I really appreciate that about your work.
0: Well, thanks. I'm glad you enjoyed it.
1: Well, thanks again for coming on, and uh, we'll make sure we link to that. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the Feminist Woman Housewives podcast, your polygamy.